0: You know, I've been down here for so long that I almost completely forgot what personal hygiene really means. Not that I have a lot of options, considering I get to bathe and fire in fire and brimstone all the time. But for the rest of you, there's Bruges. Bruges is an electric toothbrush that will change the way you think about brushing your teeth. With powerful sonic technology and ultra-gentle bristles, the Bruges redefines what it means to have super-clean teeth. It's like that feeling you have when you just left the dentist. A fresh, whole-mouth clean every single day. Right now, our listeners get 15% off their total purchase with code POD15. Follow the link on our social media feeds and enter the code POD15 to get your exclusive discount and upgrade to your oral care routine. And if you're wondering why it's called Bruges... That's because it's got that U with the two dots on top of it. Just, just so we're clear there.
1: And now, in spite of popular demand, this is Hell.
0: With apologies to two of my biggest influences, both Victor Lewis Smith and Jonathan Wolford, I would be remiss if I didn't borrow a certain tune that the two of them put together for the purposes of introducing this and any other episode where we talk about a failed TV pilot. Hit it!
1: And now it's time, now it's time to show the secret films. Eclipse the star, eclipse the stars so we never see. Shows that failed, derailed, and never made it to our streets. We bring you the pilots back. That...
0: Yes, it's time, once again, to take a look at some television that never was. Even though it just had enough going for itself to maybe make it onto somebody's fall schedule. And while some of the failed TV pilots we've covered in the past failed for various reasons, this one may have had more nuanced reasons as to why it failed. If Clarissa already explains it all, how can she possibly explain more? Through psychic power?
1: Alien intervention?
0: Next. The girl who explains it all is all grown up now. But as she entered adulthood, what else was there left to explain? We'll find out as we ourselves explain why this show never made it to a series. hell. This episode comes to us as a request from one of our Twitter users, named Mr. Cheeseball at I Am Mr. Cheeseball. And while we do thank him for making the request, a word of caution that I think I may have to start charging for requests sometime in the future. Especially if a show like this one contains more backstory than your standard multi-volume set of graphic novels by Alan Moore. With that in mind, we really can't tell the story of one show without first mentioning the origins of the network it would eventually originate from. So, with that, here now is a mini version of. A Telehel history lesson. In the beginning. Say, the mid-1970s, the world of cable TV was just beginning to germinate from the many seeds that were planted even earlier. One of the sprouts that bore the earliest of fruits was that of the Columbus, Ohio-based Warner Cable Company, aka Warner Communications, the very same company that would later on become a monolith in various forms of the entertainment industry and shitty customer service techniques when it came to getting your cable or phone or internet service fixed. But that's a totally different level of hell we wish we were responsible for. Anyway, Warner Cable wanted to embark on an ambitious project that could have been the future of television. A series of interactive TV channels known as Cube TV, spelt with a Q. While the Cube format was set for multiple channels, one particular channel was dedicated to showing only family-oriented programs. That network, and that program, was called... As time marched on, the Cube TV experiment looked promising, but ultimately went belly-up by the mid-1980s. But a number of its components wound up migrating to other Warner Communications-owned projects, including various educational channels, a dedicated weather channel that predates the real weather channel, and another channel that would air music television 24 hours a day long before MTV was ever a thing. As for Pinwheel it too would migrate and become the flagship program for what was being billed as the world's first TV network for kids once it got itself a new name. Whoa, 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 you're getting way ahead of me here. Long before Nickelodeon was the network of orange logos and green slime, there was the Silver Ball.
1: Silver Ball.
0: From 1979 up until the mid-1980s, Nickelodeon was, by all accounts and purposes, still a network aimed at a kid's audience, but not the way that they would eventually become. It would essentially be the cable equivalent of PBS, with largely educational programming and vintage TV reruns throughout the day. Nothing that would set the ratings on fire, but would actually manage to stick around as a bit of a utility channel of sorts for the young ones. By the mid-1980s, however, all that changed. Now you can play it. (laughs) The powers that be at Nickelodeon decided to overhaul the channel dramatically. Gone were the educational shows. In came shows that were brighter, more colorful, full of slime, and more importantly, Shows that actually related to an audience of young people. Everything from game shows to Nicktoons, and yes, even sitcoms aimed at kids. (laughs) One of those sitcoms turned out to be a game changer because even though the main character of this show happened to be a teenage girl, this one particular show turned out to be more of a demographical magic bullet than even the Nick executives could ever dream of. On March 23rd, 1991, Nickelodeon's fourth original live action sitcom debuted. It was the tale of a teenage girl named Clarissa Darling and the daily toils she faced along with her family and friends. The show was the brainchild of one Mitchell Kriegman, veteran TV writer and featured player on season six of SNL. You know, the good season. It's the first time I've ever been shot in my life. I'd like to know who fucked it. <laughs> Kriegman sought to create an offbeat, trend-setting character living a typical teenager's life, but who did not fit the stereotypical representations of teenage girls on television at the time. Kriegman said, quote, I thought that if other people knew what was going on in a 13-year-old girl's mind, it would be cool. They really are experimenting at that age. End quote. And so, for four years, 65 episodes, and a good chunk of time staring into the camera to break the fourth wall, Clarissa, played by Melissa Joan Hart, no relation, would not only explain it all, but do so in a way that felt more relatable to practically any and all teens and tweens that were watching, compared to other sitcoms. After those four years, Melissa would leave Clarissa behind. But then, Melissa got acquainted with someone... Named Tiffany. This is CBS. For a good chunk of its existence, CBS, a.k.a. the Tiffany Network, perennially saw itself as TV's number one network, with enough classic programs to fill up a series of museums with network founder William Paley's name on it. But sometime during the late 1980s and early 90s, once Paley passed away and ownership of the network changed hands several times, CBS's fortunes began to wane. Sure, the network still had a couple of hits on its hands, but not enough to retain their position as a number one network for many years. Making matters worse, by the mid-90s, the network would see a period of freefall after losing the rights to pro football, as well as their remaining lineup only really being appealing to future flatliners and nursing homes. In short, CBS was having a hard time trying to appeal to the money-flowing 18-49 demographic that wound up migrating to the rest of its competition. For their 1995 TV season, CBS would undergo a major change to its identity and its programming in an effort to play catch-up with ABC, NBC, and Fox's own Fountain of Youth. And not unlike many aging boomers going through a midlife crisis, the changes they made were about as subtle as hurricane force winds blowing out the candles on a birthday cake. And while the details of that advertising atrocity is a story for another pay rate, The programming that tried to occupy the network that year tried to do the same thing. Be hip, be edgy, be what the kids were into. With that kind of logic in place, CBS felt that bringing in one of those shows that the kids were into over to the adult table felt like the sensible thing to do. And since Clarissa pulled in reasonably good numbers by cable TV standards, even in reruns, the network of the eye thought the time was right for Clarissa to grow up. Of course, if this was to be a brand new series... ...there would also be a brand new series of circumstances and characters to go along with them. Gone were Clarissa's family and her best friend, Sam. Oh, right. I forget that happens every time we mention his name. Anyway, for this continuation, Clarissa would be heading off to college in New York City... ...and at the same time, undergo an internship at a major newspaper. You know, back when they were still relevant. In lieu of family and friends... Clarissa would now be surrounded by the likes of potential future co-workers at that newspaper, one of which includes our returning champion, Robert Klein. Children think that on school hours, the rest of the world ceases to function. You know, so they're amazed. Look at that, a car. I never saw. Think... Look, a lady at 2.15, a dog. I thought they only come out at three. You know, teaching children... Long before he tried to be the saving grace on Bob Patterson, Klein tried to add a little gravitas to the pilot as newspaper columnist... Hugh Hamilton. Rounding out the cast were a collection of stage performers, led by the likes of Lisa Gay Hamilton, also no relation, Chris Coburn, and Marion Celdez. Original show creator Mitchell Kriegman would return as this pilot program's co-creator, along with an up-and-coming writer of shows aimed towards tweens, future Lizzie McGuire and Andy Mack creator Terry Minsky. The pilot was made for the 1995-96 TV season, with the hopes of CBS picking up the show for that year. But, as we've indicated at the beginning, clearly this is... The Pilots crash. But just because the show wasn't picked up doesn't mean the story ends in 1995. Shortly after the pilot was rejected, Nickelodeon was in the middle of one of their annual Big Help Marathons promoting cleaning up the places where you play. During one of those big helpathons, a lost recording would be recycled for a one night only occasion. And thanks to the magic of mechanical reproduction, we'll take a look at the show CBS threw into its own recycling bin. After the break.
2: Hey, I don't want to be a copycat. 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 I like to do my own thing. Do your own jazzy thing. With jazzy jewelry and new jazzy accessories i can make jewelry you can't find at the mall funky sand jewelry and cool stuff for my hair you can't buy anywhere now my diary is extra personal and it's all original just like me jazzy jewelry and new accessories 12 cool kits each sold separately from crayola
0: Tell Hell is proud to partner up with Dave's Archives, the internet's premier place for a lot of nostalgia from the 80s, 90s, and even the present. And that includes some vintage commercials like this. It certainly is a big bun. It's a very big bun. <laughs> big fluffy bun. It's a
1: very big fluffy bun. Why is the beef? Some hamburger places give you a lot less beef on a lot of bum.
2: Where's the beef?
1: At Wendy's, we serve a hamburger we modestly call the single. And Wendy's single has more beef than the Whopper or Big Mac. At Wendy's, you get more beef and less bum. Hey, where's the beef? I don't think there's anybody back there. You
0: want something better. You're Wendy's kind of people. Want to watch more retro goodies? Head to YouTube and type in Dave's Archives. Or you can follow him on Facebook, also at Dave's Archives. And now, let's take a look at some terrible television. October 1st, 1995. The Cleveland Indians win 100 games in their season only to blow it in that year's World Series. Saturday Night Live undergoes yet another major overhaul to save itself from cancellation. And at a nonspecific time of day when young people should be outside playing instead of watching TV, we see Melissa Joan Hart and Jimmy Kimmel's bald twin, Mike O'Malley, introduce a piece of very soon-to-be, formerly lost media
1: and right now we're going to plunge into this never-before-seen episode of Clarissa now tell us about it Melissa
2: okay well um it's called Clarissa now Clarissa's graduated high school she's moved to New York City out of the house and she's working for a newspaper
0: all right and it's starring someone I believe you know her so let's watch Clarissa now a very unassuming introduction as we get to the actual start of the program where Clarissa may be just a little too enthusiastic to be riding a New York subway, even by 1995 standards.
2: If anyone had ever told me, Clarissa, darling, when you're 18, you'll be living in New York City and working at the New York Star Chronicle, I would have said, Hello, are you mental? And as it turns out, I am! Uh, I'm like not even a
0: in, and course. I have to call Did a timeout. Mean... Speaking as a resident of the New York metropolitan area when I was alive, Nobody should be this enthusiastic about riding the subway. I mean, sure, when you're on it for the first time, there's that initial curiosity factor, but after several dozen times, it's just a train in a tube that malfunctions like clockwork. Not to mention the fact that even though Clarissa breaking the fourth wall is sort of her best-known characteristic, in the real world, if you were to speak to yourself, on the subway, in New York City, to no particular audience, the rest of the strap hangers would probably call the Crime Stopper hotline just in time for cops with a straight jacket to be awaiting you at your next stop. But then again, I have to remind myself to suspend disbelief whenever watching these shows.
2: Isn't this great? Everywhere you go in New York, tons and tons and tons of people. Not just any people. The coolest, most fascinating people in the world. Well, honey, get your hand off of my butt. Ah!
0: On the plus side, the show does have another piece of familiarity attached to it aside from Clarissa. Clarissa's theme song. Now with a bit of a 90s slow jam slash jazzy groove to it. But even the credits have their flaws. Because according to the title screen, the show is simply called Clarissa, even though the star of the show clearly stated it was called clarissa now
2: okay well um it's called clarissa now clarissa's graduated high school she's moved to new york city out of the house
0: where's the now we came here with the promise of now how can we believe it's now without it being in the now when will then be now soon so in the first two minutes we've got starry-eyed ambitions coldly crushed by false advertising welcome to new york and welcome to Clarissa's new internship at a legally distinct New York newspaper, where, not unlike various other workplace sitcoms of yesteryear, we get a crash course into who's who, starting with a young go getter in suspenders who tries to put Clarissa in her place.
2: Hi, I'm the new intern.
0: Intern? Great. I like my coffee light. Lunch at noon. Here are the keys to my apartment Cable guy's coming any day now Wait for him So I'm guessing that guy is supposed to be our replacement for her best friend, Sam We then get to see one of Clarissa's actual bosses in action
1: What are we leading with? The president's trip to Moscow or Brooklyn baby born with full set of teeth? Do we have a picture? Okay, here's the headline I'm not breastfeeding this one.
0: And before you wonder if Clarissa accidentally got herself a job with the Weekly World News, the real editor puts the young go-getter in his place. And who are you? Spencer Armstrong, reporter. Actually, it's a reporter-trainee sort of thing. With an
2: emphasis on trainee. He writes photo captions, proofreads the comics, and if I'm in a really, really good mood, I throw him an obituary.
0: Considering how fast-paced everybody is speaking... I have expect the screen to turn black and white at any minute, have the audio be all scratchy, wear a fedora, and you've got yourself a paper. Hey,
1: much respect for the press around here. i the wife Anthony? better? Worse.
0: We had to hang around all day and all night waiting for him to hang that cool Hard work, or We then find out that Clarissa's intern duties largely surround one of our favorite HBO comedians.
2: Hugh Hamilton, he's the one they call the word warrior. He's got laws changed, actually solved crimes. He was played in the movies by Dustin Hoffman and on TV by Alan Peck. We don't discuss that. Though.
0: You're really going to make me earn this, aren't you? Okay, fair is fair. This is what Dustin Hoffman sounds like.
1: Stop it! You're fucking it. stop, stop it. it! Stop it! Stop it! Stop
0: it! Tell me where they're coming! This is what Alan Fix sounds like. When there is a tennis tournament, or golf especially, I love to play golf, because you can shoot 100 here and it's only 68 American. And this is what Robert Klein sounds like.
1: dong, 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 Hey, fire drill, you line up
0: there, and the teacher becomes <laughs> a robot. This is serious business. It's like I'm listening in stereo. Dong, 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 Hey, fire drill, you line up there, the teacher becomes <laughs> a robot. This is serious business. That aborted attempt at dated pop culture records. References aside, the editor gives Clarissa a friendly word of warning about a Hamilton that's not an impossible ticket to get on Broadway.
2: He's a little burnt out and angry. Tends to lash out at those around him. As far as we know, the only thing he enjoys is the abuse and humiliation he inflicts on others. Especially his assistants. (laughs) But who knows, maybe you two will hit it off.
0: In case of fourth wall, break glass.
2: Obviously, this isn't turning out exactly the way I hoped. But I had this really dear, sweet Aunt Violet, and I just think of what she always says when things don't go her way. This bites.
0: We now have one other person to meet. Somebody who, based on the way she's dressed, might be the paper's society matron? Mrs.
2: Banyan. Hi. Hello. Is there anything you need? Anything I can do for you? Well, she needs a list of things so she can stock up the supply closet. Clarissa, Mrs. Banyan is the publisher. She owns the paper. Oh, so that would be the other part of your job.
0: Ah, so she's the Nancy Pinchon of the paper. Got it. Oh, and uh, if you don't know that name, kids, this would be a good time to call your grandparents or your great-grandparents. They miss you. I wish I could sometimes just come down to the newsroom and chat with people and not intimidate them so much.
1: But you like to intimidate us.
0: True. But every so often, I enjoy a little chat with someone who isn't a total suck-up. So now that we've met 90% of the staff, let's meet this much-vaunted Hugh Hamilton. And in the grand tradition of lovable newsroom curmudgeons like Lou Grant, Bill McNeil, and Bob Woodward, how does Robert Klein introduce himself? I
1: could have hired Breslin. No, I said I've got Hamilton. You certainly made me look like a fool. Don't blame me. I'm not the one that puts on your makeup.
0: (laughs) A friendly reminder, this is supposed to be a show that would appeal to young people on CBS. Which, saying that out loud, now kind of sounds like I'm trying to mix a combination of modium with Laxatives there's gonna be a big mess once you take a dump.
2: That story you wrote about that little homeless boy, Benny, and that part about how Benny slept with green eggs and ham, and you wrote, Benny gave his book what he couldn't have, a home.
1: You're not gonna ask me to put money in a can, are you?
2: <laughs> it's very funny, Mr. Hamilton, but seriously, you know, just tell me what you want me to do.
0: Get lost. Not bad for a first day on the job if it was the first day in a loading dock in Weehawkin. But Clarissa is not to be deterred.
2: Hugh Hamilton needs a story and I'm gonna find one for him. Ha! Wait, you don't think I can find a story he would like?
0: Let me put it this way, no.
2: Well, that's just fine, you know. I don't need your encouragement, I don't need your support. In fact, I don't need anything at all from you. I need your pen.
0: <laughs> Act two begins with Clarissa determined to not only do her job well, but also score some brownie points with Robert Klein, hopefully without losing college credit or her sanity. I've
1: been writing this column, uh, let's see, five times a week for 22 years. What is that, five, 6,000 columns all by myself. This is the first time anyone's come to me with an idea. Isn't that incredible? In just a short time, you've been working here. How long has it been?
2: Three and a half hours.
1: Basically, the running time of an Oliver Stone movie.
0: Because sure, the hip young viewers out there will certainly understand an Oliver Stone reference. Uh, okay, to be fair, this aired around the time Natural Born Killers was out, so I do gotta give them one courtesy point. But that's it. Clarissa then brings in a random hot dog vendor who bears a striking resemblance to a man who raised two sons named Pete. Maybe he will be the inspiration that Hamilton needs.
1: You sell hot dogs from a pushcart, 45th and Madison. Oh, uh, yeah, that's me. Which you say are all beef, which they are not. However, you did manage to send two kids to college on those not-quite-beef dogs, which actually is an accomplishment. Of course, you tell 200 people a day about it, so it'd hardly
2: be an exclusive. You know, I have a point, Vernon. You know, Mr. Hamilton needs exclusives, but thanks for coming by.
0: Oh, for the love of... Homer, show us how a joke about a hot dog vendor is supposed to work. I won't rest until I've gotten a hot dog. Homer, this is a cemetery.
1: Hot dogs! Get your hot dogs here! Woohoo! What do you do, follow my husband around? Lee, he's putting my kids through college. Bring in the next victim. <laughs> Let me get... an actress. <laughs> and you gave yourself five years to make it, most of which was spent waitressing and dives, and time was running out. And then you got cast in a Broadway musical, didn't you? It's only an understudy role, but you're going on tonight for the first time, huh? You on Broadway, nothing can stop you now!
0: On the plus side, if that were to take place today, she and hundreds of other stage performers and crew members would probably be in the same boat due to a pandemic-related lack of work that will hopefully pick up by September of 2021. Fingers crossed. Next!
2: You're gonna love this one
1: if it isn't my friend, Murray the Roast.
2: You I mean you already wrote about Murray? Yes, yeah,
1: so well, how could you know that? It's only one of my most famous stories reprinted every year at Christmas. It's made into it a TV movie and won its time slot. Thanks, Murray. I think we're done here.
0: Uh, what was the joke? A guy is dressed head to toe in tinfoil or paper or receipt? It's hard to tell because it's a shitty copy of videotape I found in Hell's Gift Shop. And he goes by the name of Murray the Roast. And this is supposed to be a Christmas story. You know what? Jokes don't need to be explained anyway. I mean, if they were, it would stop being funny. Except it wasn't funny because it didn't make any sense. A man dresses up in something. I'm gonna go with tinfoil. Calls himself Murray the Roast. His backstory, which, by the way, we never dive deeper into, republishes at Christmas and is also the basis for a successful... TV movie? Did I drink the Windex again, thinking that it was my absinthe by mistake? Oh, if it isn't my friend, Murray the Roast.
2: You mean you already wrote about Murray? Yeah, sort of, how
1: could you know that? It's only one of my most famous stories reprinted every year at Christmas. It's made into a TV movie and won its time slot. Thanks, Murray. I think we're done here.
0: I'm sorry. Uh, I normally don't do this, but this... 20 seconds of screen time is like something you try to decipher in an archaeological dig. You see that it's something, and you want it to be something of significance. But after all the dusting, renovation, research, and expert opinions, you still can't figure out what this is and where it fits in to past societies. So now... In an effort to make sure my brain has been replaced by generic brands of cat food, I must now try to figure out... the meaning of Murray the Roast before we do anything else with this pilot.
1: Oh, if it isn't my friend,
0: Murray the Roast. His... his his name is Murray. He's... He's, he's dressed up in something that's hard to tell because of poor video quality.
2: You already wrote about Murray? Yeah, that's
1: what?
0: how could you know that?
1: It's only one of my most famous stories reprinted every year at Christmas. He 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 calls himself
0: a roast. <laughs> he's made it to a TV movie and won its time slot. And his story is always told at Christmas. Reprinted
1: every year at Christmas. And every year at
0: Christmas. 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 Does he have friends that are cannibals that try to eat him every year? Thanks, Murray. I think we're done here. No, 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 no. This is network television. That wouldn't work. Well, if it isn't my friend, Murray the Roast. Does he go from door to door to give roasts to the needy families of New York? Murray or... the
1: Roast. Murray the Roast. Murray the, the Roast.
0: Did he just stop taking his meds and doesn't realize
1: who he is anymore? Can
2: you hurry for about Murray? That's
1: what. How could you know that? It's only one of my most famous stories. Who
2: are you, Murray the Roast? I need answers! We can't just
1: show up for 15 seconds and then just touch Please stand by while our host regains his sanity. Why would you dress up like that and call yourself the roast? I know Soylent Green is exactly one year away from now, but this is 1995 and still doesn't make any...
0: Please stand by while our host
1: regains his sanity. This broke me. I swear, this 15 seconds of television just broke me. Please stand by while our host regains his sanity.
0: Na, 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 na. (laughs) Na, 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 na. (laughs) <laughs>
1: Please stand by while our host regains
0: his sanity. Whew. That's odd. Normally, I don't have my annual psychotic breakdown until the season finale, and that's not for a few weeks. Oh, well, let's go back to more reasons why this show will never make it past the pilot. You
2: just don't want an assistant? Or was I too eager? Too enthusiastic? Because I'm not used to people taking an instant total dislike to me. Well, get used
0: to it. You're in New York now.
2: (laughs) Well, since we're obviously not going to be working together, I just want to say goodbye.
0: Goodbye. End of show. Bye.
2: You know, when they told me I was going to be Hugh Hamilton's assistant, I thought I was the luckiest person. I figured anyone who wrote like you must be amazing. But you know what? It turns out, you're not. It turns out you're rude and bitter and mean. And you're not anything like Alan Thick.
0: Well, she's right on at least one point. Robert Klein is still alive as of this recording. Come on, I just had a meltdown. The least you can do is give me a few jokes in bad taste. Clarissa tries to make sense of all that's happened, only for her new co-workers to let her know that she was Hamilton's unwitting muse.
2: This is Clarissa's New York, and I have just one piece of advice for her. Move. New York is dead. You're not Marlo Thomas in the opening credits of That Girl. Who's Marlo Thomas?
0: Well, she did more for sick children than you ever did for Christianity in the God's Not Dead movies. I need to recover from Murray the Roast. Let me have this.
2: You saw Hugh's column. Yeah, it makes me sound like this naive freak of nature. Oh, no, he doesn't. Not really. Right here, he says, Cloris is a naive freak of nature. <laughs> You're taking this too personally. No one's gonna know it's you.
0: Where is my naive freak of nature? And just when you think Clarissa is getting ready to jump into a hole and die... I want it on page three with a banner. Hamilton's
1: back. He's better than ever.
0: Well, I've waited this long to make the reference, so... Hit it, (laughs) Lin-Manuel! I had a feeling we couldn't afford the rights to do that anyway. Oh well, worth a try. Hamilton's column raises Clarissa's spirits a little, but not so much that she wants to serve Klein some humble pie.
2: Mr. Hamilton, I don't want to be your assistant if you don't want me to. So just tell me.
0: If I say I don't want you to be my assistant,
1: it's over. Right. And if I don't say it, what then? I guess you'd be my assistant.
2: Right. Well.
1: What? What? I didn't say. It. <laughs> More guilt with you in two minutes than ten years of cheating on my wife.
0: (laughs) And we end on another joke perfectly suited for disaffected Generation Xers who will be watching CBS in 1995. All 14 of them. But not without one more attempt to trick us into thinking that Clarissa and the go-getter reporter might be an item if the show gets picked up never. I suppose I should say thank you. It's just that I put in for the computer two months ago. I am a reporter and you're an intern and it's your first day, okay? Thank you.
2: Really? It's nothing. Just remember, every time you look at it, you owe me.
0: And finally, one more fairish, buelish turn to camera to sum things up.
2: You know, I'd rather use this anyway. It makes me feel like I'm in one of those old Cary Grant movies. Hello, sweetheart. Get me a rewrite. Yep. This is so cool.
0: <laughs> ah, to only be that optimistic during my teens and 20s. What they don't tell you, though, is a metric ton of student debt, credit card debt, overpriced rent, daily commuting nightmares, deciding between a street cart pretzel or a street cart hot dog for lunch, then making the same decision for dinner, high blood pressure, getting squeezed on the subway, and losing your personal items on the Uber ride home up to and including your apartment keys! But I'm sure they're saving all those stories for the second episode. So, where does Clarissa do her explaining in Telehel? Series creator Mitchell Kriegman famously instituted an arbitrary no-wearing-purple policy on the set of the original show. Wearing purple should be the least of her problems in our nine circles. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery... Obviously, it's a pilot that never made it past its first show. And before you call a flag on the play, yes, I'm aware that they're talking about a possible sequel show coming to a streamer near you. But as of this recording, nothing has come to fruition as of yet. And even if it did, I doubt we would even want to see an adult Clarissa's life at a newspaper since most of them are dying off anyway. So let's not waste any time putting this version of Clarissa in limbo. The cheery disposition Clarissa gave off clashed with all the mean-spiritedness of some of the characters, including the young go-getter and Robert Klein, who was and still is as much a part of New York as Smith's Bar on 44th and 8th. But having worked in New York for many years back when I was among the living, yes, there are jerks, but nobody I've seen that would want to tear you apart limb from limb like some of the other characters tried to do. Yes, it is competitive in the real world, but I still gotta take points off for a lack of authenticity. So I got a mark it for fraud. As long as we're on the subject of mean-spirited characters, let's also not forget the people who were watching the show. Who I'm sure were glad to see their favorite teen heroine back on TV, but not like this. Not even Clarissa herself, as per this 2018 interview with the Huffington Post.
2: CBS was known as like the old man's network, and they were like, let's bring some youth to it, let's bring Clarissa to CBS. So we shot a pilot, and the pilot was... Uh, Clarissa, I was going to say Sabrina. Clarissa goes to college um, in New York to become a journalist, and it's her internship um, at a at a newspaper. And um, so we shot one episode, a pilot, um, with some really talented, fun people, some Broadway stars. And, and it just didn't it didn't really have the feel of Clarissa. So it didn't really take off. The network decided not to make this show, not to go forward with it. And when people found out about it recently, they've been pretty upset that it didn't go forward. But it wouldn't have been the same show. I don't think people would have liked it as much.
0: If you wind up not giving the audience what they want, they're going to turn off the TV and rap. So perhaps CBS was doing everybody a favor by passing on the show. And of course, there's also the same problems that most sequels have, warranted or otherwise. The inevitable complaint that it's not as good as the original, and that they should have let things end when they did. In other words, leave the audience wanting more without actually giving in to the viewer's gluttonous desires. Or finding and reading poorly written erotic fanfiction involving Clarissa and her best friend Sam. Further proof that Rule 34 is probably one of Hell's greatest achievements. Clarissa, aka Clarissa Now, earns 4 out of 9 circles of telehell. And now that I've re-upped my prescription to Cytelepram, it's time to get back to more pressing issues. Like, what was the deal with Murray the Roast? I've seen throwaway gags in my lifetime, but this one's going to keep me awake forever. Is he one of those street dancers you see in Times Square? Was he a guy who stayed in a sauna too long one day? Was he a joke writer for the Dean Martin roasts? Was he the inventor of one of those workout suits that you look like a mylar balloon, but then you sweat a lot as you move? Was his last name Rose, but people spoke to him with a speech impediment and he thought Rose sounded like roast? Was he one of Bill Murray's long-lost brothers and got so lost in the shuffle that he decided to carve out his own identity? Does he just like meat? This broke me. Uh, That broke me. I'm... I'm done. Next time on Telehell... We don't guarantee much around here, but what we can promise you is that this next episode will be 99.99% laugh-free.
1: I mean, you're sitting in your house, you look out your front door, there's a CBS field generator out there, six trucks, Mike Wallace got a portfolio, this thick with your name, get the hell out of
0: there! Until then... If it's not IntelliHell, it's not worth a damn. Now that everybody is getting mysterious chemicals injected into their arms, that can only mean one thing. It's almost safe to socialize with people again. So why not get a head start on that and follow us on our social feeds. Twitter and Facebook, both at Tele-Hell Podcast.